Welcome to another episode of The Doctor Says. I'm Shreya. I'm Iman. And I'm Zalak. We're three college best friends sharing our journey in medicine. On today's episode, we'll be going over the extracurricular activities we did in undergrad. A little fun fact about this episode, we actually spent three hours trying to record it the other day, and I do not know why, but collectively, we could not get two brain cells to rub together to make it happen. I feel like it was because we ran into a lot of technical difficulties, and also, like, we tried recording this in the morning, and we learned that we are better recording at 11 p.m. <laughs> We're not recording these in the morning anymore. Never again we learned our lesson. But here we are. So hopefully this works out. Yeah, so on today's episode, we will be talking about extracurriculars, which include research, any clinical work, shadowing, volunteering, campus orgs, either together or separately, as well as anything that we did outside of healthcare, outside of medicine. And we'll be talking about how, you know, it's very important to diversify your resume. So yeah, you're in for a journey on all of what we did basically in college. <laughs> yeah. So one of the first things that Zalak mentioned was research. And amongst the three of us, Iman is definitely the person who is your go-to gal if you are interested in research and you want to know more about it. So Iman, you want to talk about your research experience throughout undergrad? Yeah, sure. I can go ahead and talk about my experience with research. For me, it started out with the Freshman Research Initiative at UT. I was emailed an application a month before I had to register for my first semester of classes, I decided to just go ahead and apply and see what happens. I remember seeing that email um, around the same time. And I, on the other hand, completely ignored it and went about my day. I thought that the email was spam, actually. So um, it's a little bit less than what you thought. At least you knew it was real. I was out here like, no, it's spam. Move on. This is fake. I've got to say, uh, if you're applying to UT right now or if you're a freshman right now, please do take advantage of FRI because I had a really great time with it and I never had to take a lab class at UT. I never took chem lab or bio lab because the research group that I joined gave me credit for both bio and chem. Are you serious? Why did we not know this? You didn't take bio or chem lab? Nope. I just wow. did my research. That's wild. Did it say that in the email? So basically, when you're looking at the email, they tell you that there's different streams. That's what we call the different research groups. Mm -hmm. And when you go on the FRI website, they'll show you which streams cover which labs. So not all of them cover bio and chem. It could be either or. Some of them cover Orgo Lab. Oh my gosh. I remember doing Orgo Lab with Shreya. We were struggling with these um, lab reports. It's just very tedious. Like they're not hard labs at all. It's just a lot of busy work. Once we got the hang of it, we pulled, we got an A in Orgo Lab. So no, that's very true. I think like, I mean, again, it's it was very tedious. Like, yeah. it just took time, but it wasn't difficult. And I think yeah. that was a good thing, at least. 
Yeah. So uh, learn from our mistake. And one, don't ignore the email because you hate research. And two, don't think it's spam. Because I think if we had read through the email thoroughly, we would have also known that this would have covered some labs uh, at yeah. UT. So, And then I wouldn't have been struggling to find research after I graduated. So I wouldn't have struggled through bio lab and chem lab. I'm going to put this out there. I never thought I'd go into research. Once I was accepted into the program, I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. And then I went ahead and toured those different research streams, found one that I liked. It was BioBricks. And I was kind of scared thinking that maybe people are going to know more than me and I don't have a strong foundation because I didn't do anything like this in high school. I've got to say that joining FRI was a turning point for me. It really taught me how to collaborate with others and it honed my writing skills. Because with FRI, you have to write a lot of papers throughout the year. And you have to learn how to analyze data. These are really important skills that you have to take with you later on for other classes and even in your future as a health professional. So my question to you, Iman, is I'm curious, was this lab research or clinical research? I did lab research at UT. And the difference between clinical and lab research is clinical research, 99% of the time you're dealing with people mm -hmm. and you're interacting with those patients or you're going through their charts, surveys, things like that. But when you're doing lab research, that's more on a cellular and molecular basis. So in this lab, I was studying DNA double strand repair mechanism. So I was working with E. coli, working with the plasmids, introducing new DNA, making it resistant to ampicillin, you know, these little things, the nitty gritty details. And I really enjoyed that. So you, you prefer lab-based research over clinical research? Yes, I'd say that I prefer lab-based research or bench lab research over clinical. After I transferred, I was looking to join another lab. And so in fall 2019, I joined a psychology lab where we are studying the gut microbiomes of adoptive and biological children. I was instead working with the families instead of focusing on the gut microbiomes. I like going into the nitty gritty details, trying to learn the foundational sciences and then applying that to a larger scale. So after fall 2019, I ended up emailing a bunch of PIs in the medical school and in the undergraduate institution. I finally joined a lab where I was studying acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplasia. I did that for the rest of my time undergrad, and that was bench lab research, which I really enjoyed. I know that Zaluk actually had a different experience than me, and she focused on clinical lab. Yeah, I personally loved the clinical research side of things. After I graduated from UT, I did a postback program. And when I was looking at the postback program, I saw that they offered research, which was, you know, something I was lacking. And so with that research, we were able to go to the Cleveland Clinic in Florida, and all of the students in the program were randomly assigned to a department. I was assigned to the gynecology surgery department, which was a completely new field and something that I had never exposed myself to or been exposed to. 
So I was already very curious to see what the research would be about. And it ended up being about comparing two surgical procedures for vaginal prolapse. Isn't one of the specialties that you're kind of interested in OBGYN? Yes, it is. So that was also really nice. When I saw the email that I was placed in gynecology surgery, I was like, yes, mm -hmm. I get more of a feel for what it is and more of, you know, I can just see what it is outside of just, you know, researching. Um, yeah. So the research that I did, it wasn't interactive at all. So I didn't interact with any patients. Um, Iman's, she had surveys to do. She had to call parents. She was talking to children and she was talking to patients. I, on the other hand, was not. I was sitting at a computer doing chart review. We were pulling up charts for patients who had underwent either procedure um, in a certain time frame, and then we were just pulling out data from that. But it was very interesting because as I was doing that, I was able to see some trends and, and see, okay, some patients came in with these symptoms after they had the procedure, they left without the symptoms, or they or the patient did not have any symptoms before, and they had more symptoms after. So it was very interesting to see, you know, the two sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know, if you are doing, you know, statistical analysis on data, you do have to use, you know, RStudio and you might have to code. What a unpleasant reminder of our time in biostats at UT. Imagine my surprise. First of all, I'm not a coder. Okay, I, I tried coding in high school and I learned the hard way that I am not meant to be a CS major. Mm -hmm. So imagine my surprise when I take this biostats class and on the first day I get slapped in the face with our studio. Yeah, it was crazy. And we also like, aside from the lecture that we had to go to, we had to go to the computer lab on a separate day to code. Yeah. It was like my worst nightmare. It was horrible. And I had that, I had that lab specifically at like 10 a.m. on Tuesdays and it was just not fun at all. I think Iman has a little bit more experience with our studio though, because she did use that for her analysis. Yeah, I think I there were some times where like I would show Iman my lab and I'd be like, hey, can you please help? Because I know you've used this program before and I have no idea what I'm doing. So shout out Iman for helping me in biostats. That's what's up. Okay, so going back to the topic of research, I have a question for the both of you. Um, a lot of people who are pre-med who, you know, want to apply to medical school have this belief that when you do research, you need to have some kind of publication, you need to have some kind of poster presentation. So my question to the two of you is, did you guys do that? And if not, why? And is that okay? So I would say that it's not a requirement for you to have a publication, thesis, or poster presentation for medical school, but it is highly recommended that you do so. To add on to what Zalak was saying, definitely expose yourself to research, but it is not necessary to have a poster presentation or a publication out of that research. I know that Shreya, although she did go through with a research program, she didn't end up publishing or having a poster presentation, but I mean, she still got multiple offers from medical schools. So it's really not a deal breaker if you don't publish. And going back to Shreya's question, so yes, I did have a poster presentation. And although I didn't get published, I did write two thesis papers. 
With my poster presentation, both of them were requirements. The first one was a requirement through FRI that at the end of the year we had to present our research. And then at Barnard, when I was completing my thesis, which was a graduation requirement, I was also mandated to do a poster presentation. Nice. So that leaves me to talk about my research experience. So I, on the other hand, tried both lab-based research and clinical-based research, and I found out, to put it plain and simple, I do not like research. So all of my research hours were done during my sophomore year of college, spread out over both semesters. The summer before my sophomore year of college, I decided that I wanted to expose myself to research and put myself out there to see if this was something that I wanted to do. And I also knew that in order to build my resume, to build my application, I needed to have research on there, or at least show that, you know, I tried, I, I put myself in that field. So Iman mentioned that she got her research opportunity through FRI at UT. I, however, used the Eureka database that UT offers. This database has all of the research opportunities available at UT, along with the professor that is hosting that lab. So I went on that database, found a couple of research labs that seemed interesting to me, and I sent out my resume. I sent out cold emails to those professors. And eventually, I found one professor who was ready to take on a incoming sophomore. And this was a molecular genetics lab. In this lab, we were focused on studying the effects of alcohol on the embryo of zebrafish. So this was a lab-based research. And, you know, I got to use the cool different tools like, you know, really powerful microscopes, centrifuges, micropipettes, all of that. My first few weeks in the lab, I looked forward to going. I thought it was super cool. But eventually that excitement wore off. And once I was going in regularly, I realized that I did not like molecular genetics. At one point, it started to feel like a chore. I stuck with the lab for one semester. And at the end of the semester, I left because I knew that my effort and my time would be best placed elsewhere. So the following semester, I looked for another research opportunity because I was like, okay, I tried this. It didn't work, but I'm not going to give up. Let's try again. This time, I got a position at a clinical-based lab. It was not directly associated with UT. It was more so associated with the Dell Medical School, which is UT's medical school. And so one, that's what caught my attention because Dell Med was my like dream school. So I got that lab position and this was more data-based, more patient-centered. Similar to Zalek, I did not get to interact with patients face-to-face, -face, but rather I was studying their, their data that was obtained. Although this was far more interesting to me than the lab-based research that I had done the previous semester, after a certain point, it also started to feel like a chore. And so I stuck through it. But after that, I kind of just backed off from research and I pursued other things to build up my resume and to build up my application for med school. So it, go it just goes to show that if research is not your cup of tea, if research is not something that you are interested in, it is not the end of the world. It is not, you know, take you out of the running as a capable medical school candidate you can still get in. You are still just as capable. It just so happens that research is not your thing.
And like Iman mentioned, I don't have any publications. I do not have any presentations. But I also want to put out there that I'm not closing myself off to research. I know that in today's date, for certain specialties, you do need research. Some residencies do require that in order for you to be qualified to apply for it. So let's see. Who knows what the future holds? And maybe over the next four years, I find a research lab that I absolutely fall in love with. I see you doing a lot more clinical research, though, just like based off of everything. Maybe there will be a topic that's super interesting because I did, you know, gynecology surgery. And like you mentioned, I was interested in OB-GYN. So so already being interested in that field made my research a lot more bearable. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely feel like if a topic comes across that you're already interested in, then you will have a great time with it as well. Yeah, fingers crossed. So that concludes the research portion of our extracurriculars topic. And the second thing that we want to move on to is clinical experience. This is a must-have. If you are going to apply to medical school, you cannot apply without clinical experience. Plain and simple. Non-negotiable. I think I'll start us off for clinical experience. My clinical experience includes shadowing both an allopathic doctor and an osteopathic doctor. And both of these doctors were primary care physicians. So my time shadowing both the MD and the DO were very unique on their own, and it taught me a lot about, it basically showed me why I wanted to pursue an osteopathic degree. Uh, so to start off, I'm going to talk about my time with the MD doctor. He was a family medicine physician, and during my time here, I learned how to take vitals. I also learned how to read EKGs. I was also testing the blood sugar of uh, certain patients who are diabetic. So I thought that was really cool because I didn't have to be a passive shadower. I was seeking out opportunities that I could learn from. And doing those hands-on things is really good because not only are you learning, but it also shows the physician or the nurse that you are following that you're taking initiative into your own hands. If you're looking for a letter of rec from this physician, it shows them your personality. It gives them something to talk about because with a lot of physicians, they have tons of kids shadowing them. You want to show this is my interest. Yeah. And I feel like when you're passionate about something and you're expressing that, the physician will also be able to see it, you know? So I definitely agree with Shreya. Another thing that I would say is never walk into a shadowing opportunity being like, I'm only doing this to get a letter of recommendation. You're doing this to learn. You're doing this to expose yourself to the field of medicine and see hands-on training. I 100% agree with that because although this is a requirement for your application, this is a learning experience. You are mm -hmm. getting the opportunity to firsthand see how medicine is practiced and not mm -hmm. all physicians practice medicine in the same way. So the more doctors you shadow, the more clinics you put yourself in, it's just going to help you. Mm -hmm. And you'll have more experiences to talk about, you know, with when you're applying. So just make sure that you're taking mm -hmm. advantage of getting the shadowing opportunity and paying attention to, you know, what's going on, asking questions and being an active observer. Make the most of your time there. Yeah, so I shadowed the MD in 2019, the summer of 2020. COVID was in full swing. Everything was shut down. 
So I was not able to find any shadowing opportunity. Every pre-med student was in a frenzy because it just wasn't possible. And that's where things like virtual shadowing came in clutch. And I know Iman and Zelag have a little bit of experience with that. So we will touch upon that uh, in a few minutes. Um, and then the summer of 2021, I've graduated, I'm applying to medical school, and I knew that I needed to get exposure to osteopathic medicine because I was applying to DO schools. So fortunately, I was able to find a DO physician to shadow. That was honestly one of my most favorite experiences. I shadowed this doctor for a month and I got to see OMM or osteopathic manipulative medicine in full practice right in front of my eyes. This was a kind of medicine that I had never gotten an exposure to. And during my entire time there, this physician did not prescribe one medicine to any of her patients, not one. My time with her solidified my love for osteopathic medicine. And I knew that this was the degree that I wanted to pursue. Um, so after practicing family medicine for a couple of years, she actually went back and got board certified in osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine. This is what gave her the ability to be able to treat her patients without prescribing any medication. So I thought that was really cool. And the fact that being an osteopathic physician kind of opened those doors for her was something that attracted me more to the idea of osteopathic medicine. I think that's really cool. Like the fact that you shadowed her for a month and in that month you did not see her prescribe single medication. So Shreya, how did you get into contact with the MD physician and the DO physician? So the MD was definitely a lot easier than the DO. For both of them in general, it was just a lot of cold calling and emailing as many clinics as I could. The MD was very easy because we were pre-COVID and certain physicians love to have students shadow them. So when I was looking for a osteopathic physician to shadow, COVID was very much around and very prevalent. So a lot of clinics were not allowing students to come shadow the physicians and which, you know, it made sense why they weren't. So even for the DO, it was a lot of cold calling, and eventually I found one in downtown Houston, and I did not let the chance go. Even though this clinic, without traffic on a good day, was 45 minutes away, with traffic, keep in mind, I spent an hour and 10 minutes going from my house to this clinic, and Houston drivers suck, so I definitely had many near-death experiences on my way to this clinic but 100% worth it. But that is how I found both of my shadowing opportunities, just calling up clinics and being like, hi, like I'm a pre-med student and I am looking to shadow the physician in this clinic. You're going to get a lot of rejections, but stick through it because it just takes one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Shreya is very right about that. Just one and you will be calling so many clinics and a lot of them even might want a year commitment. That's something you can't do. And that's okay. You're looking for an opportunity. So if you keep trying and you keep calling, one will, you know, hopefully say yes. Um, another thing that Shreya mentioned was, you know, like the distance. She didn't let that get to her when she had this opportunity. All the physicians that I shadow, which I'll get into in a little bit, um, they were all really far too. And I live in Dallas. So downtown Dallas traffic is also 
really bad, terrible drivers, many near-death experiences as well. So yeah, just take what you can get. I remember talking to Shreya when we were applying to medical schools this past cycle, and she was telling me about her experience with this DO physician. And after hearing about her experience, it inspired me to reach out to osteopathic physicians and shadow them. Similar to Shreya, I shadowed both an MD and a DO physician, and I also had to cold call and show up to different clinics with my resume and ask them, hey, are you allowing students to shadow? I started shadowing in winter 2018. I shadowed a neurologist, MD, for about 30 hours. I'd go a couple of days a week, and that was just kind of it. There, I learned how to take vitals, take patient history, and I would also administer a MOCA test. That's called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. And that's just basically for patients who have gone through brain injuries or have been concussed to see where their cognitive skills are at. And then this application cycle, I shadowed a MD and a DO. So the MD physician I was shadowing is both primary care and infectious disease. And then the DO doctor was also primary care and he focused on family medicine. So the reason why I ended up shadowing a DO physician, like I said, of course, I was really intrigued by what Shreya said, and I did see that physician use OMM on different patients. But the other thing is that when you're applying to osteopathic programs, it is extremely important that you shadow an osteopathic physician. Some schools say that a letter of rec or a shadowing experience with an MD would suffice, and they also were a bit relaxed with the requirement because of COVID, but they really want to see that you've shadowed an osteopathic physician so you know what you're getting into and you are a serious candidate for these DO programs. The infectious disease doctor that I was shadowing, she's an MD, and while I was shadowing her, I ended up working as a medical assistant for her at the clinic. And I learned additional skills such as reading EKGs, taking vitals, recording medical history, and also I got certified in phlebotomy. So I'd be doing lab work as well at the clinic. With the DO physician, I was mainly there just as a shadower the entire time. And I was just learning from him why he did certain things, how OMM is practiced on patients. And he really taught me about why he was administering certain tests, why he was asking these specific questions to the patient. Because the entire philosophy of osteopathic medicine is trying to get to the root cause of the illness. And so he would have to ask specific questions to get to that point. So I know Zelik had a different experience when she was shadowing MD and DO physicians. So if you wanted to expand on that, Zelik. So unlike Shreya and Iman, I actually did not shadow a primary care physician. I shadowed physicians that specialized. So for example, the first physician that I ever shadowed, she was a pediatric ophthalmologist. And I got to see eye surgery from that. So that was very cool. It was my first time interacting in a clinical setting, and it was with kids. Um, my second experience was with an interventional cardiologist. 
So through that, I got to see catheter procedures. I even was able to see open heart surgery with a different surgeon at the hospital. And it was a different patient population. So the pediatric ophthalmologist was kids and the interventional cardiologist was more of the elderly population. Um, so then the next shadowing experience I had, it was actually supposed to be the summer of 2020, which is when COVID hit. So it got pushed back to 2021. And this was very interesting because the physician that I shadowed was a sports cardiologist and he had his own research lab in, within the clinic. On the first floor, they would have research and they would have patients coming in that would be participating in clinical trials. So while I was shadowing the cardiologist, I was able to also see the research aspect of things. I didn't really do any data analysis or data co collection, but I was able to observe the research that they were doing. And at the end, I was able to sit in and listen to presentations done by the other students and learn a little bit more about the research side of sports medicine. So with this shadowing experience, I was able to also work with the nurse practitioner. She and I both would sit down and look at case reports and case studies for patients that were coming in or that had just been seen. I learned a lot through this experience and I was able to also present that at the end along with the students who did the research. So I was able to present what I learned during my shadowing time. So I thought that that was very unique and that's not something that I had with my other shadowing experiences. So the last physician that I shadowed, she was a pulmonologist and she had very open and honest communication with her patients. And that is one of my biggest takeaways from that shadowing experience. She told me that there are two types of patients, one that will appreciate your honesty and then the other that will just not want to hear it. And I saw her interact with both patients. So I learned how important it is to effectively communicate with your patients. Another thing I was able to do with the shadowing experience was get the opportunity to medical assist. So I was able to take vitals, take patient history, and be in a room with the patient one-on-one. -on -one. That was an experience that I never had before going into her clinic. So I really appreciated spending time with patients. So what I'm hearing from Zalek right now is the importance of patient interaction. Honing your communication skills is very important, especially as someone who wants to enter the medical field. Yeah, I completely agree with Iman on that. So going back to the shadowing, all of the physicians that I shadowed were MD. And that summer before I started the postback program, I was looking to shadow DO physicians because I decided that I was going to apply to osteopathic medical schools. As I was trying to find, you know, the cold calls, the emails, unfortunately, I was unable to get a shadowing opportunity with a DO physician. When I was doing my postback program, there was an osteopathic physician who came in as a guest speaker, and she taught us more about OMM, how the field of osteopathic medicine started. And I was able to learn about DO schools from her firsthand. So I talked to her after she did her presentation and she was willing to write me a letter of recommendation after learning a little bit more about me. So I was very lucky to have that experience. If you are absolutely, absolutely unable to shadow a DO physician, you can try connecting with one and seeing if they're willing to you know, learn more about you and write you a letter. 
that may not always happen because that is more of the unconventional route of getting a letter from a physician, but it is something you could try if, if you are absolutely unable to shadow an osteopathic physician. So Zalak, since you weren't able to shadow a DO physician, what sealed the deal for you to pursue an osteopathic medicine program? When I talked to the um, osteopathic physician, she mentioned how she used OMM in her practice. And I thought that that was very unique. And that's something that MD schools don't have. Um, we're going to be talking about, you know, the difference between MD and DO schools in later episodes. But that OMM aspect of it and the whole body healing, I think that's those are the two things that stood out to me the most that I would like to incorporate when I am a physician. So like Zalek said, we are dedicating a future episode to simply talking about the differences and similarities between allopathic and osteopathic medicine. But I just want to throw out there that even if you do pursue an MD program, I do know that outside of the MD school and your MD program that you were doing, you can be certified in OMM. You can go out of your way to learn it. So it's not like this is strictly a only like DO degree thing. If you're an MD and you have an interest in OMM, by all means, pursue it. Okay, so the next two topics that we will touch on are community service and joining organizations in undergrad. So most of my volunteering hours and community service hours were obtained through an org that I was a part of for four years. This org was called Omega Phi Alpha, and Zalek was also a part of it. It was a national service sorority. And honestly, the places that we volunteered were very unique. And I loved all the different places we volunteered at, such as there was a pregnancy clinic that we did. We set up a food drive uh, in downtown Austin for the homeless shelter. And one of our go-to places to volunteer every semester was the Boys and Girls Club in Austin. And we also had National Service Week where we would choose one nonprofit organization per semester and fundraise for them. Aside from the community service that we did, we were also able to take on multiple leadership roles. Yeah, and I think being a part of an org and taking on these leadership positions is extremely important for your application because you learn different skills the ability to work in a team, the ability to problem solve, to deal with situations either on the whim or over a period of time, whatever it may be. Zalok was freaking president of this org at one point, and I was VP external that same semester. And we are friends. And I know what happens with a lot of friends is when you put them in like official positions together, it will sometimes break their friendships or like conflicts will arise. But me and Zalek actually worked pretty well together. So yeah, we were also very excited to do this like duo press VP thing. I remember before the semester started, we were like, we're going to do this and we're going to kill it. So OPA was more of an org that was not really pertaining to healthcare or medicine in any way. It was just something that me and Zalek did because it was our own interest outside of being a pre-med. But there are definitely countless organizations on campuses that are more geared towards healthcare and medicine. And I know both Zalek and Iman have been a part of those. So Zalek, do you want to uh, briefly talk about your time in GMT? Yeah, so I was a part of GMT, which is Global Medical Training, my junior year of college. 
Through this organization, I was able to attend many volunteering events, social events to rack up points. These points were um, used for a mission trip whenever you chose. So whether that be winter break, the summer or spring break. I chose to do a mission trip in spring break. And unfortunately, it was March of 2020, which is when COVID hit. So the mission trip got canceled. I was really upset about it. I was supposed to go to Peru. But I mean, what can you do? The volunteering that we had to do for GMT was mostly medical related. It was really fun because a lot of the volunteering that we would have to do was medical related. So for example, I volunteered at a kidney donation drive, which was very interesting. When Iman was at UT, she also did a pre-med org called AED. So Iman, want to talk about AED? Yeah, so AED is Alpha Epsilon Delta, and they actually have multiple chapters across different colleges. Not all schools have them, but a few of them do have an AED, and they're all pre-health organizations. So through this organization, we had that similar idea of point system with volunteer and social events. And basically, you'd have to rack up these points in order to maintain your status as a member in the club. So we did volunteer activities such as going to nursing homes, raising money to send physicians on mission trips, and also working with individuals who have intellectual disabilities. Along with the volunteer activities, we also toured medical schools. We would have panels where physicians would come speak to us or any healthcare professional would come speak to us and talk about their journey in medicine. So AED is something that I highly, highly recommend because it's such a large group and you're able to connect with medical schools and also talk to the other seniors that are there at your school and talk to them about their journey in medicine, get advice from them and learn about which professors to take. What should I do when I apply to medical schools? How should I study for the MCAT? And when I transferred, I joined another club called Columbia Synapse. And basically, the mission of this group was to educate individuals about traumatic brain injury. And within this club, I was vice president. As vice president, I would host peer support group meetings for individuals that have had traumatic brain injuries and their family members. So aside from volunteering through campus organizations, you can also find volunteering outside. So for example, I volunteered at a hospital. Um, I didn't really do much, but I but it was very nice to be in a clinical setting. I know Shreya and Iman, they didn't do any hospital volunteering, so it's not like necessary for you to have, but it is it is good to be in the clinical setting. After I graduated, I also did you know the post back program. And they offered me the volunteering, like I mentioned in the last episode. And so throughout the year, after I graduated, I was also able to volunteer. I volunteered at a food bank, a memory and wellness center, a free clinic, and I volunteered as a standardized patient, which is something that was super unique. Even with me, when I was obtaining outside volunteer opportunities, I did simple things like tutoring children. I would tutor with my laptop on Zoom. I also joined a group called Columbia Volunteer Tutoring Corps, 
where I taught classes in biology and math. Another program that I joined was Build at Barnard, where basically there was a group of eight girls and we were working on our own social justice projects. So my project focused on accessible education for children in underserved communities. Piggybacking kind of off of what Iman's activities were both at UT and when she transferred, I think it's really important to note that get creative with your activities. You know, obviously when you're building your application for med school, you need medical experience and clinical experience, but don't be afraid to pursue your own interests. Being pre-med is not your entire personality. It is an aspect of you, but if you can get creative with your activities and, you know, like for me, I've been dancing since I was six years old. So when I came to UT, I knew without a doubt that I wanted to try out for a Bollywood dance team. So I did. And my freshman year, I made it on to UT Saya. We were a nationally competitive fusion dance team. And I absolutely loved my time on this team. And through the team, I also held another leadership position. So it was kind of like a best of both worlds. And I definitely talked a lot about it in my applications and I was asked about it in my interviews. And this was something that I held very close to my heart. Dance has always been a part of my life. And I was really glad to have been able to show that in my med school application. Yeah, Shreya is completely right. You know, like, do the fun things, do the fun orgs. I was a part of ICA, uh, which is Indian Cultural Association, and that organization hosted a dance competition each year called Jellup. And it was super fun. I didn't dance my years at UT, but I was able to still be a part of the dance community in that way. So I really enjoyed it. So Shreya and I shared the experience of being a part of the dance community. And we also worked at an after-school program called Girl Start. Girl Start is an after-school program, and we focused on empowering fourth and fifth grade girls by introducing them to the field of STEM. Yeah, um, we were basically called STEM mentors. And every week we met with one to two group of group of girls, and it was anywhere from 30 to 40 to 50 girls, depend, just depending on how big your call was. And keep in mind, this is virtual. For the entire semester, about 10 to 12 weeks, every week we hosted a different science experiment that covered a different topic of science. So one day we're building circuits and making light bulbs light up. Another day we are building paper airplanes to cover the topic of air dynamics. Another week we're making rockets to study velocity and pressure. And I think I speak for both me and Zeluk when I say that this was a really fun and creative way to stay engaged with the Austin community and just give back in any way we could. We're women in STEM. And so being able to show fourth and fifth grade girls that you too are capable of this was just really heartwarming, really touching. And I just loved those girls. They were so amazing, so sweet, so smart. And it's definitely a experience that I hold very close to my heart. So similar to Girl Start, another place that me and Zella actually volunteered at together was called the Ark of the Capital Area in Austin. So the purpose of this nonprofit organization was to provide a safe space for 
adults in the greater Austin area that were born with intellectual and or developmental disorders. Both me and Zalak were art education volunteers, and our primary goal was to help these students express their inner thoughts, feelings, whatever was going through their mind through different forms of art. Mm-hmm. It was it was super fun. I I really loved that. So I think we have reached the end of the episode for today. I hope this kind of shed more light on the different activities that all three of us have done to build our respective applications for med school and, you know, what kind of got us past that final barrier and securing the acceptance. Everyone has their own unique experiences from, you know, and you've heard that from me, Zaluk, and Treya. There really isn't a set rule like you need this many hours you need to do this this and this honestly just do what you enjoy give back to the community and share those experiences with the admissions committee when you're applying like Shreya mentioned earlier pre-med isn't your personality being pre-med isn't the only thing that's interesting about you there are other aspects of your life that the admissions committee wants to hear about so showcase those and Tell them why you are a great fit for their program and why you deserve to be a student at their institution. Medical school admissions loves to see diverse candidates. They love to see that you have done different things and that those things do not all have to be in medicine or healthcare. Yeah. So have fun with it. You know, have fun with the activities that you're doing. Give your all in every extracurricular that you put yourself in. But most importantly, please take care of yourself. In our next episode, we'll actually be discussing the MCAT and how to focus on your mental health while you're preparing for the MCAT. So yeah, we will be talking more about that in two weeks. And as always, if you have any questions, please feel free to DM us at the doctor says on Instagram, or you can email us questions at the doctor says at gmail.com. Yeah, so we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.